Oh my God, it's the best Gretzky story of all time. Even better than the one we just got from Sherry Bassin when he didn't draft him first overall? Yeah, Tom McCarthy was pretty special too. But obviously, a lot of people had questions when they were wrong on Gretzky. Rudy Pillis in particular. I don't know how many times I have to tell you this, Popper, but it's not the season. It hasn't been the season. It's not going to be the season. So until it's the season again, stop sending me text messages at ridiculous hours of the day. I am a night owl. I'm up late. I decided to text you. I was doing some research for this OHL Stories podcast. And I thought, I'm going to message Farwell because I know he probably puts his phone down at 9.30, has a warm glass of milk, and shuts it down. You can make fun of my advancing years all you want. It's fair. I accept it from young punks like you. But yes, the reality is, warm milk aside, I lead a rather normal life, okay? There's a get-up time and go to work like a normal human. There's a go-to-bed time so you can be fresh for work the next day. And when I get up... In the morning, and I see a text from Chris Pope at about 12.24 a.m., and it's some lunatic-like ranting about being denied the opportunity this year to see Francesco Pinelli. I'm like, okay, I get your point. On the scale of COVID casualties, it's down the list. But more, more than that, why is this coming in at 12.24? Why is Pope concerned about this right now that he's got to text me about it? I do a lot of my responding to the messages I don't get to during the day at about 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning. That's my, I'm at like my peak. I'm like, okay, what did I miss today? Because I am a very bad texter. I will get a text. I'll be on the road because I often drive for work or whatnot. And yes, I'm still out on the road working and I'll get it. And I'll be like, oh, okay, not urgent. I'll get back to them. And then the day gets by you and then, you know, you come home, you have dinner, you sit down, you're talking to your significant other, you're taking the dog for a walk. And then eventually I'm like, I should probably get back to a couple text messages. And at that point I had seen that Francesco Benelli had like four points at the under 18s. And I was just like, this sucks that we're not seeing, like seeing the actual technical rookie season of Shane Wright this year would have been great. You know, um, we got to see a bit of Connor Bedard out West, but I wanted to see Pinelli. He's going to be the first Rangers first rounder into the NHL since Radic Faxa. And here we are having to watch him for seven games at the under 18s and a couple highlight clips from overseas because of some stupid virus. And it's just, I'm just, I'm done with this virus thing and I'm getting to that point, you know, and that, that was maybe the tipping point. (laughs) At least I know that the vast majority of the messages I send you fall into your not important or non-urgent category because the number of times that I don't get a response, I'm like, where is this? Like, I know he's got a phone. He's on it a lot, but clearly my messages just don't, get through the filter of important stuff. To well, you. no, they are important, but it's like, Hey, uh, we have this guest lined up, you know, yep. This guy's confirmed for Monday. It's like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll send Farwell a message when I get home. And then it's like, Oh shoot. I didn't get back to that. <laughs> listen, don't. And there are, if there are any of my friends and family that listen to this podcast, I don't know if there are, I kid some do, um, but they're going to be laughing at this because they know that I am notoriously awful at returning texts. And I apologize for that. It's something I need to get better at. Maybe I could set it up for a uh, post COVID goal of mine. You should maybe find a way there's gotta be a way to schedule responses or something like that. And just have like a six or 12, let's say 
generic responses that you could do to any particular, like it would make sense no matter what the text to you was. And then at one thirty, two o'clock in the morning, those auto responses could just start going out to people. Sounds great. Catch you later, pal, or something. Ha ha ha. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> LOL. Great. Um, speaking, you, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say um, why I do that. I, I say I'm driving and I could respond when I get that text real quick using my Apple CarPlay, but I'm often listening to another podcast or I'm in the middle of jamming out. And I'm like, I'll get to it later. Um, but that's my job. I get to drive around and have some spare time. You apparently during this month of May, we didn't talk about it last time. I'm surprised you even have time to do this podcast, given your Farwell for Hire campaign that takes place every month of May. And here we are back into it again. How are you doing? You're three days in You have at the time have, of this recording. You have no idea how much anxiety this causes for me. Like I, I sometimes ask myself why I do it to myself every year. And then of course, I realize that I do it for very personal and important reasons because two of my sisters passed away from cystic fibrosis. The month of May is cystic fibrosis awareness month. And I had this idea and for some reason it caught on with people back in May of 2014 to hire myself out for any and all odd jobs in exchange for a donation to cystic fibrosis. Instead of just asking people, hey, will you make a donation? Will you sponsor me for the big walk at the end of the month? Let's try it this way. And it it really caught fire, which I'm very grateful for. And I make no bones about the fact that the job that we do on a day-to-day basis is not that difficult. There's no heavy lifting. There's no sweating. But the problem is I go from 11 months of that to a month of a whole lot of that. And it's mm-hmm. from zero to 60, right? So it, it, it makes me anxious at this time. My calendar is already filling up with jobs to be done. In fact, as soon as we finish recording here, I'm off to work, even though it's raining outside right now. And that's fine. It's all for the right reasons, but it does give me anxiety. I will just quickly say this shamelessly. If you'd like to help out and you don't want to make me work, you want to take pity on my old bones, that's great. You can go to farwellforhire.com, farwell, the number four, hire.com. Find out all about the campaign. You make a donation right there. Or maybe you just want to do what you do at every single OHL game that you attend. And you haven't been able to do this. Buy a 50-50 ticket. That's right. If you're listening in Ottawa right now, you're listening in Windsor, you're listening in Owen Sound, Sudbury, North Bay, anywhere in Ontario, buy a 50-50 ticket. The jackpot is already north of $11,000, and you're going to be supporting cystic fibrosis. Rangers5050.com. Enough shameless plugs. If someone were to make a donation, could they postpone the job that needs to be done? Like if I have a job come, say, July 5th, could I make a donation now to provide your services for July 5th? I reserve the right for future jobs to determine what that job is and how much the donation is before I'm committing to something in July. Because I'll tell you... 31 days in May is pretty intense. Do you and- have a truck? <laughs> oh, moving. I know what you're getting at. <laughs> everybody needs a truck friend, whatever. You're from Palmerston. You know okay. everybody with a truck. Um, no, I'm, I'm honestly curious as to what's going to happen um, if the Kitchener Rangers ever make it to an OHL final again, because it was just three years ago um, on the eve of May, we were up in Sault Ste. Marie, double overtime game seven of the Western Conference final. And you're like, Popey, I don't know what's going what's going to happen here. Like we we fly home tonight, one way or another. My campaign starts tomorrow, or like two days from now. What am I going to do if we're then having to go to the Eastern Conference and play an OHL championship? And I'm having thirty one or 
30 days have September, April, 30 days of 31. 31. Okay, yeah. Thank you. Uh, 31 days of Farwell for Hire campaign, how that is going to happen. So I don't know how you do it on a normal year, um, but I'm hoping that the Kitchener Rangers do get back to an OHL final and we get to see you really juggle all those balls. It's funny because that year of that memorable seven game Western Conference final that finished in the Sioux on April the 30th of 2018 gave me reason to think and kind of reevaluate this because at some point it is going to happen. And that, it was so funny that night. So look, we knew the Rangers had a pretty good team that year and they loaded up at the deadline, Mike McKenzie's first year as general manager and so on and so forth. But believe it or not, unlike the first year when I started this fundraising campaign, I actually put some thought into it. I plan ahead. The first year I thought of this, I'm like, ah, let's throw this out on Twitter and see what happens. And, and here we are. But that, that year was the first year I had planned an actual launch party. We were going to have people do a bar in downtown Kitchener, kick it off with a bang and make some money and blah, blah, blah. That party, like months of planning had already gone into it. And we were sitting there in the intermission of overtime, number one, heading into double overtime. And it was about 1030, something like that. I, I remember looking at the clock at one point, it was 1045 because we got, we got word, or maybe the game ended at 1045. Either way, we got word that you're flying out before midnight or you're not flying out. Yeah. So then I'm like, if like, we're only going into double overtime, this game has not yet been settled. And I'm like, yeah. if, if we, this game doesn't finish in this overtime, we're done. If and it quickly. goes to a third overtime, <laughs> then we're never going to make our flight. And I'm going to have to text back home and say, stuck in the Sioux, enjoy the launch party. Enjoy the launch me. party without me. I'll anyway. zoom, I'll zoom in. Nowadays, that's what you would do. You would just zoom into the launch party. I I have to give you credit though, because when this thing first started, the firewall for hire, because you've always raised money for cystic fibrosis, because you normally did the walk and so on and so forth. But when you started the whole firewall for hire thing, as you mentioned, you didn't really do much planning behind it. it you were raking lawns, doing driveways, sticking your arm up a cow. Horse. Yes, that happened. Horse, yeah. whatever. You know, you were really. Uh, pounding the pavement, but you've gotten smarter, Mike. You've gotten smarter, not just because of this COVID. Now there's a 50-50. Now there's a donation. Now you're selling merch. You are, you know, you're working smarter, not harder. And I do have to give you credit because you're still hiring yourself out, but you're also providing the option of, if you want to give me a break, (laughs) you know, you can still find other ways to do it. So I just, I wanted to give a, you know, a quick stick tap because you are working smarter, not harder. Well, let me, let me piggyback on that because you talk about merch here to everyone in London. You're going to love this. If you go to farwellforhire.com slash shop and look for the merch yourself, maybe you want to get a Farwell for Hire t-shirt of your own and do ungodly things to it. Like have at it. Come on, take a piece if you want to. And you're also helping charity at the same time. Okay. I'm going to, Okay, I'm going to bring it up. I wasn't sure if uh, I was going to. Okay. Okay. But, yeah. um, I think you should, for Farwell for Hire, maybe just throughout the uh, OHL season, I think you should sell shirts with the Farwell for Hire logo on the front. But a few years back, you had a great rant. And on the back, on the back of the shirt, maybe you could put a hashtag, suck at London. <laughs> no, you know <laughs> and, what? <laughs> you should sell those. because You would make a killing. And I would really like to see late in the, in the season or anytime during the season, Ranger fans showing up to the odd with a Farwell for Hire shirt with that hashtag on the back. You know what? That would do really well, I think, in 19 OHL markets. It's right? funny you bring that up because just last week, we were reminiscing 
about the late, great Don Cameron on this podcast, because we are just coming up on three years since his passing. And last week happened to be three years since the last game he called. And so I, I don't remember how suck it London became a thing, but you're right. I was ranting about something and I started using it an awful lot. Again, much like you and I have talked about on this podcast, it's sports. It's supposed to be fun. And we know that the city of London and the London Knights wear the heel label proudly. So whatever, I'm going to stick it to you from a little further east down the 401. Well, I got a call one day, Popper, on my daily talk show on 570 News. And it was from a gentleman that said, you know, I really don't like when you use that kind of language. Don Cameron would never say such a thing, no matter what he thought about the London Knights or anything else. He says, I think you should reconsider your use of that kind of language. And I'm like, well, you play the Don Cameron card on me. The guy's not no. wrong. The caller was not wrong. So I, uh, I dialed back the WWE-esque rhetoric a little bit. And I truly have not said until now, suck it London one time since that man called me on it. Well, that is where I kind of bounced around whether I was going to bring it up or not, <laughs> because I don't know if it's PG. And I, I know we do have some young OHL fans that listen. Anyway, yeah, kids, be better. Be better yeah. than me, please. It's not hard. I see where that fan was coming from. It was still great when it came out. And I think selling the merch would just be fair. Well, you'd, you'd break records. Um, but I know you said enough of the selfless bugs. How much did you raise last year? Oh, my goodness gracious. Uh, like $162,000. Crazy, that's, right? That's crazy. And I, I'm extremely proud of you. And I know your sisters would be buddy. too. So um, we, we try not, not to get too emotional. It's normally chirping here. But every <laughs> month of May, I do get a little soft spot for you because everything you've went through and everything you do for this community and for this uh, CF cause, finding a cure or control for cystic fibrosis. So I don't know when we're going to be able to record hour or two hour long podcast during this month, but we will find ways to uh, get these podcasts out to our listeners and to you uh, in <laughs> good luck this month. And if I can help in any way, please let me know other than the monetary don donation I will be making. I know brother. And I appreciate it. Uh, it. You've been a great support over all these years and you're no slouch either. You're always out there busting your ass. You're at this barbecue. You're, you're loaning your, your connections to other things that you're, you actually uh, helped sponsor one of our prizes in our, uh, 50 50 draw we've got a bunch of early bird and consolation prizes if you don't win the big jackpot so don't sell yourself short but thanks for the support on my efforts too i only help out when there's beer involved uh, wrong with that. Kidding. Hey, but we, just... all, we all have our reasons we no, all have yeah, our reasons i got a lot of cases that are close to heart but anyway uh, enjoy the month of May. And we've already, this has already been almost a two hour long podcast with our guests uh, that we are recorded the interview with and the intro. And I know you probably have a three o'clock. So you want to wrap it up? Uh, sure. Let's, and, and real quick, because you're talking about these podcasts that are coming out. Next week is our first ever uh, listener requested guest. We got an email to farwellandpope at gmail.com says, Hey, I'd love to hear from this guy. You ask. We respond. So that's coming up next week. And please send us an email at any time. Farwellandpope at gmail.com. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, who you want to hear on the podcast. And when you do listen to the podcast, wherever it is you're doing that, leave us a rating. Would you mind? Give us a comment, a review of some kind. We would love to hear that from you too. And of course, the more you do that, the more this kind of spins out into those old algorithms and stuff. Of course, it's also on YouTube if you want to watch it there. If you are watching it on YouTube, you can listen to it on your mobile, Spotify, or Apple iTunes. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL and at underscore Chris Pope. 
So you always do such a great job of teeing up these guests. You found your way through your connections, Popper, to get us to this scout who has been around the game for more decades than even I no, nah, maybe not more than I've been alive, but he's getting up there. He's getting close, not to not to you know give away his age, but yeah. he has seen an awful lot. He was he was right there when the New York Rangers came oh so close to their Stanley Cup. Didn't get there, was part of a dismissal along with Craig Patrick at that time. Well, he left when Craig Patrick got dismissed, but lots of stories, lots of connections to the NHL. In some way, somehow, you unearthed this guest this week, Popper. Quick story, because I know you do have to go. Two oh, years man. ago, Kansas City Chiefs win the Super Bowl. I'm at my buddy's place watching the game. A couple Molson Canadians. And I get sitting on a couch with my buddy's uncle Shannon, Shannon Curry. He then, my buddy goes, Popper, Shannon used to scout for the Rangers. Next thing I know, through the whole halftime and third quarter until about two minutes left in the fourth, when Patrick Mahomes is or- orchestrating the giant comeback that he did, Shannon's still telling me stories about his time around the OHL and this player and this player, and he drafted this. This is what I said to this guy. And my head's just going in you know, circles listening to this guy. So I'm like, Shannon, we need to get you on the podcast. He says, nope, I'm not coming on the podcast. But he did say, I got a guy for you. And this guy has seen everything there is to see in hockey. You mentioned it a long time. National Hockey League scout for the Rangers, the Panthers. I know I'm missing a couple other teams in there. I think Arizona. Um, heck, I think he was around when the Rangers sold the Kitchener Rangers to Eugene George. Right about that. To, to yep. give you, to give you a, a <laughs> timeline of how long Paul Henry has been around this game. Not only that, almost two decades as a psychologist for two maximum security prisons in Ontario, both Kingston and Millhaven. This guy is has seen everything in hockey and has seen everything maybe that you don't want to see behind bars in talking to some of these hardened criminals. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Paul Henry. And remember, farwellforhire.com. There are a number of OHLers that stand out as some of your, your best players of all time, Paul. But I wanted to start with just a little bit about you because did I hear correctly that you spent last summer running around the entirety of Prince Edward Island? Did that happen? Oh, that was 1999. Thank goodness it wasn't just last summer. You had me it worried there. It was on there. the rails to trails in 1999. We had training camp in 96 with the Florida Panthers, and I found the rail to trail, and I said, someday I'm going to run this whole this whole uh, province. And I did 132 miles on the rails to trails there. Some great stories from that one, I'll tell you. Some really, really funny, interesting stuff. But my favorite has to be the one about Forbes Kennedy. I ended up in, in the Chase On family homestead in Tignational DEI, and uh, I was visiting with the family there because I ran the, I ran it in honor of Steve to raise money for the family. You know, they had a three, five, and seven-year-old when he passed, and... Uh, I really liked him as a player. He was a Memorial Cup MVP in uh, 1986 with uh, Guelph. And uh, I just, you know, I wanted to draft him for the Rangers, but we didn't have that fortune. And uh, anyway, I uh, am visiting with the Jasons, and they said, do you ever run into Forbes Kennedy? I said, no, no. I see him at the games in Charlottetown. He said, well, if you if you see him, 
Next time you see him, please tell him that his shoes are still here in, in the closet for when it, the Tignish team lost out in the Tier 2 playoffs. The, the Forbes had forgotten the uh, his shoes and left them there, and they're still there in mint condition. And I did a podcast two weeks ago with the St. Mike's 60-61 Memorial Cup team and the Junior B team that won the provincial that same year, and uh, Forbes ended up on that on that podcast. It was three and a half hours. And, uh, I told him to go pick up his shoes. Twenty one years after I was asked to do it, <laughs> what was his response? Oh, he laughed, and well, his response was that, "Oh, yeah, yeah." He says that's what that's when I hung out with Stomp and Tom in Skinner's Pond, just a few miles from Tignish, and he went on give me a history lesson on that area, you know, but that was the one I remember the most was that his buddy Stompin' Tom Connor, you know, was from, you know, just very close to Tignish, you know. As tough as that run was, it sounds like it was a good time you had. Well, it was uh, one of the special times in my life, yeah. Yeah, very, very special time, yeah. That that 60-61 Memorial Cup team, uh, from St. Yeah. Mike's that you just you just dropped the mention of uh, a moment ago. Now this, of course, is prior to the formation of the Ontario Hockey League back in the OHA days. But still, that team was was special for a variety of reasons. Not the least of which, Paul, is because a, a lot of the players were basically homegrown talent. They could they could probably walk to the rink every day. Well, I know that I grew up in an area where five players on that team were within the radius of three, three miles of each other. You know, this, there were the three Draper brothers. There was Terry O'Malley, who was, uh, and Les Kozak, they were, and Paul Jackson, actually. Uh, Mike Draper was not on that team. He was too old, but the Draper twins, and you all know probably Dave Draper, who was the only guy to win a Memorial Cup as a player, coach, and manager, and he won two world junior gold medals with the junior team back in 88 and he won the stanley cup with colorado avalanche you know in 96 so pretty good resume for that area that uh, we all grew up in eglinton park and roger nielsen was our mentor and coach in uh, baseball and hockey you know i was going to bring that up playing baseball and hockey under roger nielsen as a kid what yeah. was it like he was a great great man and uh he was a better baseball coach than hockey coach <laughs> you know um it was it was just fun you know fun because uh we used to fight over the right to get up at four in the morning and deliver 700 globe and mails and every all the kids idolized him to the point that we used to fight for that right to you know he started you off as a as a roller and a thrower and then if you did a good job, you became a collector. And I, the best story of all time is the uh, my best friend, a guy named Skip Stanowski, whose father won the Memorial Cup in 1938. He died at 96, the second oldest, to Kitchener's Milt Schmidt, second oldest NHLer, won four Stanley Cups with the least. But he, uh, he was a collector on the 23rd. He went up to this house and... It was the Don Cherry of his day. And, and the guy said, uh, you know, like Roger made us dress up. And, uh, you know, he, you know, 
shirt and tie, and he was the, the guy was just fascinated with Stanowski, who ended up becoming this. 1967 MVP in the NCAAs with Cornell with Trident. Anyway, he, uh, uh, you know, the guy said, look at my son over there. He says, I can't get him out of the house. All he does is sit there and play the guitar all day long. He's never going to amount to nothing. Who do you think that guy was? I don't know. Neil Young. Neil Young. <laughs> I was trying to think if it was a hockey player or a... Or a no, yeah. Neil Young. He's never going to amount to nothing. Yeah. Remember, yeah, I think so. I remember asking him to do a concert for Timo Solani in Finland. He wanted 750000 bucks. He's never going to amount to nothing. Yeah. How did you... How did you... I just got to follow that up. Sorry, Farwell. How did you plan a concert for Timu Solani in Finland? Well, no, he wanted to, to bring Neil Young to a concert in in uh, in, in Finland. You gotcha. know, him and Alpo Suunen. You know, Alpo was uh, a coach of Winnipeg, uh, I think the second European after Ivan Olenka to coach in the NHL. You know, um, but he, he wanted Neil badly, but not that badly. <laughs> not that badly. Yeah, not $750,000 badly. <laughs> no, but he's never going to amount to nothing. Right. We told that story when we, 1,200 of us had uh, a great night for Roger Nielsen and, uh, at the Westin in Toronto, you know, Harper Castle. You know, we had a, when he was sick with, you know, his illness. You mentioned Solani's name, Paul, and, and he's one of the guys that you identify as among the best you ever saw. What made Timu Solani so special? Um, he just radiated excellence. I remember the first time I saw him play in Lapiranta, Finland, which is on the Russian border, 15 miles from the Russian border, and uh, he got three goals and three assists, and they won 10-4, and... Uh, I remember telling him after that night that he was going to be the rookie of the year. And, uh, I mean, he, he was electrifying, you know, electrifying just, and just as good a person as he was a player. I mean, he's just, he's just so charismatic and just, and it all comes from the mother who, for me, you know, she looked after the welfare department in a little town, a city called Espoo. E-S-P-O-O, and it's the second largest city in Finland, and she was in charge of welfare department, so she looked after, you know, needy people, and she instilled that kind of a, uh, you know, value system in her son, you know, who had a twin brother, by the way, who was a goalie, you know, yeah. Hmm. Arwell's mentioned that list of the best players you've ever seen a couple times now. Uh, for people who didn't hear the list, who was who is at the top of that list for you? I can't even remember. Was it Keon? <laughs> you you had you had in no particular order. Uh, Bobby yeah. Orr, Dave yeah. Keon, T. Mussolini, yeah. Eric Lindros, yeah. and Paul yeah. Correa. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll take any one of those five guys. <laughs> number one. <laughs> you yeah. a guy like a guy like Paul Correa? <clears throat> Excuse yeah. me. He was a little ahead of his time, I guess, being a, a smaller stature player um, in a big man's game back in those days. What made him so special? Well, the commitment was and the focus was 100 percent, 
you know. Yeah, I mean, I remember the first game I saw him play, which was his first college game in Arono, Maine. And I remember he got two goals and two assists, and they demolished Providence College 9-2. to two. And I remember um, the Ferrero twins stole one-on-one off him and uh, meeting with him the next day, and it was like water off a duck's back. He couldn't care less, you know. And I remember, you know, a few months after that, being in Milwaukee when he was, you know, playing for the national title, and he he scored over a hundred points, and he, you know, won won the Hobie Baker, and uh, you know, like, and he won the national championship all the same year. I mean, he just he just so focused, you know, like just so focused, and it's really interesting because that same, you know, that. 60-61 team was Father Bauer's team, and and the same Father Bauer had his father, T.K. Korea, who was a national uh, rugger team player, and he hung out with all of those guys who were at St. Mark's in UBC, you know, on the on the national team, and and I mean Korea's father's love for hockey came from hanging around with O'Malley and McKenzie, you know. Um, all those guys that were at, at, you know, that he brought west to, you know, for the Grenoble and uh, Olympics in '68, you know. So that's that's where the father's passion for hockey came from, you know, just hanging around with the Father Bauer disciples. So Korea, Solani, and then a couple of those OHLers on that list of five we just went over: Bobby Orr and. Eric Lindros, both former Oshawa generals. But did you ever, I mean, Eric Lindros dominated the game. Had it not been for injuries, who would have known what the the ultimate bar would have been for him? But in junior, he was a man amongst boys. Yeah, totally. You know, I had, I was working for the national team from 86 to 94. And I, I had him in a game as a 15 year old with the national team in Fredericton. New Brunswick against the Russians. He scored in his first shot off the face-off, top shelf, you know, um, at 15. And it was so much fun watching him play with, say, Mike's Junior B's that year. And I always used to run into John McCauley's. And his son, Wes, was on the same team. Eric's a 73, and Wes is a 72. And John John used to, uh, you know, Eric idolized John <laughs> Yeah, because John used to tell him he was the second best player on the team after after Wes, you know. Um, but the '88 is because John was a top lacrosse player in the country, and I think his number was eight. So and somewhere it must have been taken. That's why he became '88. You know. You mentioned you were part of that uh, the national team uh, for our country, and um, yeah. I wanted to ask about Lillehammer uh, particularly. What do you remember from that trip? Um, well, it's so far ahead of the rest of anything I did in, in hockey all my life. It was, you know, I actually, I I remember being, it was August the 8th in 92 when I was offered the job in a, in a, in a payphone in Kitchener. I had been watching, you know, uh, something at the auditorium in August, I guess it was, I think it might've been 
under 18 team. I think it might have been, yeah. Um, anyway, um, you know, I was bent and driven on making every Canadian proud of the team, and it certainly ended up that way when we lost in a shootout to Forsberg and the Swedes, you know. How um, much does that still sit with you all these years later, the fact that it ended the way that it did? Well, I always used to give it to Forsberg every time he, he I saw him, and I saw him two years ago, and, you know, in the... Uh, in Orange's Peak at the World Under-18, which is the same tournament that's going on in Plano, Texas. And, um, and I mean, he always told me to get over it. And I remember the night he got inducted into the Hall of Fame, I went to, you know, to Toronto for, to, for the induction ceremonies and told him I still wasn't over it. So, you know, <laughs> but, you know, it's just not the way to settle a gold medal game in my estimation, you know. What were you but, doing during that shootout? Um, just hoping we won. You know? <laughs> I didn't know if you'd be pacing back and forth or if you could watch uh, it. I've, I've, be I've never been at a game. Um, never, I've never been at a game for the last eight minutes of that game when Derek Mayer scored for us to go up 2-1. And I've never seen a team come after another team harder than the Swedes in the last eight minutes of the game. And we took a, a good penalty. Um, Brad Warenka, who went on to play in Edmonton, um, you know, and there was no issue about the penalty and they tied it up. And then the shootout was, you know, was Forsberg against Korea. And when you look back upon it, I mean, Forsberg had an inch better career than, than uh, Korea, you know, like when you, I mean, everything you saw in that gold medal came, like, you know, it's, it's almost like it was the reality of the next many years in the NHL, you know, like our, our first line was uh, <clears throat> Korea, Nedved and Pontos. And uh, the next line was, uh, Greg Johnson, who became the captain of Nashville for six years, uh, Savage, and uh, Dwayne Norris, and that's Josh, his son now, uh, playing for, for Ottawa. We, we had a, a really, really, really good team of future NHLers. We had Chris Terrian, who played many years in the NHL, and Adrian O'Coyne, who at one point was in the top eight defensemen in the league. You know, he got 23 goals one year for Vancouver. He became the you know, highest scoring defenseman goal-wise in, in their history. So it was a great developmental opportunity and it was exactly what Father Bauer envisioned. I went to St. Mike's High School in Toronto and that was tattooed on, on my uh, rear end pretty heavily. You know, the importance of uh, education and, and uh, hockey at the same time. And, you know, that was... Uh, <clears throat> the last sort of Olympics of, of that nature. Can you take us through the construction of the team, Paul, and what goes into getting that group together that would represent Canada at Lillehammer? I, I think Dave King would have been part of the program back then as well. No, Dave, Dave became the coach of, of um, Calgary Flames in 92. And I had worked with Dave from 86 to 92 as a director of scouting. So when he 
when he left, I recommended Dave Draper, Dave Chambers, and Bob Murdoch, and they couldn't have a contractual agreement. Um, and then they asked me to do it, and I, you know, I got a leave absence as a psychologist at a mental health center in Penetanguishene type of thing. So um, that's how that came about. And I mean, there was no recruiting Korea. His he from the age of 15 on had a relationship with Hockey Canada when he was playing in Penticton you know, getting about 148 points a year as a 15-year-old. Um, Dave King and he established a relationship, and he, you know, he wasn't playing in the NHL until he had the Olympic experience. So there was no recruiting, you know. Um, basically, the first guy I signed was a guy named Hank Lamons, who was a world champion sailor. Um, out of Brockville, who I'd watched uh, back in 85 with Brockville Braves, and then he went on to St. Lawrence. Um, and he, he he was our captain. And I remember, you know, looking after him for after the Olympics, uh, and uh, Ottawa Senators stole him from us, and, and he never had the chance to be a summer and winter Olympian, which he wanted to be. Um, and the second guy I signed was Adrian O'Coin, and it took seven visits to his house, you know, uh, from Penetang to uh, Orleans, you know, on the seventh visit, he, he said yes, you know, and, uh, you know, that was, that was, and then, you know, one after one, we just were able to, it was, we established very, very good relationship with like Pierre Paget gave us Dwayne Norris and uh, Todd Warner, who had been picked fourth overall. And Todd was a really special guy, as was Dwayne, or, you know. Um, and we had we had Brad Schlegel from Kitchener on D and Todd Lusko from Guelph, you know. They, they were, I mean, Todd Lusko's hit on Kenny Johnson. The... Uh, the first round pick of the Leafs was monumental. I mean, if you, if it's on YouTube, just have a look at it. I mean, he was the hit of the, you know, clean hit, you know, just the hit of the tournament type of thing. So, um, but, you know, we, we were able to get Corey Hirsch from the Rangers. Neil Smith was outstanding with us, giving us Corey Hirsch, Johnny Voix, you know, who's another Maine player, MA, you know, like University of Maine. Um, but Corey Hirsch at that time was a, voted by the Hockey News as the number one player outside of the NHL, you know. Um, and, you know, Manny Legacy signed him in 93 and Sault Ste. Marie at the uh, Memorial Cup. And, I mean, he went on to, you know, win the Stanley Cup with Detroit, um, he was the backup to to uh, Corey Hirsch, but he had a much longer and prolific NHL career, you know. Um, but that's um, you know we and we had a really really good schedule, tough schedule, and um, we just drove towards getting you know um, ready for the Olympics, you know. You mentioned Sault Ste. Marie and you're talking goaltenders. My brain automatically goes to John Van Beesbrook. Yeah. 
I read a story somehow he was responsible for putting some money in your pocket. Yeah, he uh, he got me a thirty, thirty-five, and forty thousand dollar raise. <laughs> so I call my boat the John Van Bees boat. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, he was. He, he went public with my helping him as a sports psychologist. So that was it's something I can't talk about, but he did. So that's that became a thirty, thirty-five, forty thousand dollar raise. Him talking about it, so. I'm indebted to him for life. The John Van Bees boat. That is outstanding. And I almost got him on it when when the Flyers had training camp in Peterborough, which is near our cottage in Norland, which it's an hour away. And he never saw the John Van Bees boat, but our family had a lot of fun on that boat. I'm really interested in in that side of your story, Paul, how how a guy goes from working in the correctional system in Canada at various prisons to becoming, among other things, a a, a sports or team psychologist. How did that all come to pass? Well, it happened with Wayne Thomas, who is a longstanding friend of mine. When I was working at Kingston Penn, I was unmarried and living with Wayne's best friend, a guy named Ian MacArthur, who was at Teachers College in Kingston. And I met Wayne through Ian, and we'd become good friends and uh, friends with all those Leaf guys. And and uh, Wayne ended up in New York Rangers in 77, and he ended up being an assistant coach to the, to the New York Rangers, to Herbie Brooks. And uh, it was a pick that was really struggling with three goals and three assists in 25 games. And um, Wayne recommended that I speak to the guy. And I had a three and a half hour meeting with the guy and he, he got four goals the next game and two the game afterwards. And that's how my career in hockey started, you know, and I've been in it since, you know, that's, that's, that's it was a fluke. I mean, you know, like I never had any, vision to be in hockey. I mean, I loved hockey since, you know, being a six-year-old type of thing, but I, I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't a guy looking to get into it, you know. Um, but that's that's how it started. And then the Rangers asked me to be the team psychologist and uh, also to be the Ontario scout. Um, and I, you know, they, they, paid me 50% psychology, 50% scouting. So, you know, and it, you know, so I, I worked for them from 82 to 86 and I quit the day they fired Craig Patrick, who got backstabbed and lost his job after we went to the semifinals. And then again, we lost to Patrick Waugh, you know, and it was Van Viesbrock versus Waugh. And Patrick won the Stanley Cup that year by himself almost. And then, Ten years later, it's the same same two guys facing each other in the finals. I thought their law of average would pan out, but no, Patrick was uh, not to be knocked off the pedestal. You know, Patrick winning that cup is that the most dominant performance you've seen in the Stanley Cup? Yeah, or just in hockey, really? Well, no, but it was pretty close. You know, pretty close. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it was, you know, I mean, he's 
I mean, here's a guy I read his book, 700 pages, and here's a guy that had a 5.6 goals against average in junior hockey and never won anything all, all, all the way up, you know, and, and you know, you know, like, and then he won the Calder Cup uh, symbolic of the American League Championship as a, you know, guy that finished playing junior. And then the next year he wins the Stanley Cup, you know. Um, pretty special career. But 5.6 goals against average, so, you know, he just, nothing, nothing. He's just a winner, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You talked about that time with the New York Rangers, uh, 50% psychology, 50% scouting. When you're, yeah. when you're scouting, especially at, at that level, Paul, do you remember, like, how much would you fight for a certain player, a guy that you've scouted, you've been watching, and you say, this is the guy we have to have on our team? Yeah, yeah. Well, probably the best fight I ever had with that was uh, Adam Graves versus Brian Leach. Um, that was a two-week fight. <laughs> and uh, I had Adam four, fourth on my list, and I'd seen him 18 times. And then I had Brian seventh on my list, and I'd only seen him three times. So you're you're going to fight for the guy, you know, that that uh, is in your area. Um, but anyway, the two American guys, Chuck Grillo and Ray Clearwater, they uh, you know they they won the fight, and uh, by by some level level of fate, some the two of them were both on the '94 uh, Stanley Cup team, you know. Um, but Adam here, he goes 22nd and Brian went ninth, you know, so that, that, I mean, it was, we had a great, great staff, you know, like we just, you fight and then it's over and you, you have a consensus, you know, so you, you work as a team and, uh, teams win, you know. Well, when I was playing, we had a, in Guelph, we had a sports psychologist, Doc uh, Widmeyer. But back when you got started, I don't think it was a very common place. Did you get a lot of pushback when you first got into the league? Well, I don't get any more pushback today than I got yeah. then. You know, I, I could care less about pushback. I'm going to do what I can do. And, you know, I I don't worry about what other people think, you know, but it's still hardly used. Everybody talks about it, but 90% of guys I see have never looked at how they feel. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's still not a priority, you know. Um, I, I haven't seen it anywhere being a priority. Nobody, nobody goes after the best uh, sports psychologist like they do the best coach, you know. Like a Mike Babcock capitalizing on a, you know, forty-eight million dollar contract. <laughs> Certainly, you know, um, it's it's it, you're in the background, and that's that's where you want to be. There's no issue anyway, you know, but. Um, it's just not, it's, you know, some players use it, other players, you know, diss it, but, you know, I've, I've never had any issue with the way it is. It's reality. You know, people don't like to open up, you know, I've heard you, I've heard you talk Paul about former Kingston Canadian, Tim Kerr as perhaps (laughs) one of the most, Maybe mentally tough or mentally complete oh. players. Oh yeah, he it was ridiculous. The summer before he ended up making Philly, 
like he was a, a man, a driven, determined man. Like I, I mean, he, you know, came out of Kingston. He was an undrafted six foot three, two twenty pound tree trunk. Uh, you know, who still has the record for the most power play goals in the NHL in history. And, um, you know, I, I just, he only played a few games that year after Kingston got knocked out of the playoffs in Maine Mariners. Um, and, and, you know, he, he, I mean, he, he, there was nothing stopping him. And when a guy puts that in his mind and does exactly what, you know, he says he's going to do that was, that was really, really something to look back upon, you know, um, the success he had and undrafted. I mean, that's, that's, and at that time you could sign a player till November the 1st. So he had Detroit and Vancouver offering a lot more money. His family was really a tight, great family living, you know, in Tecumseh, just across the river from Detroit. And he, but Philly, you know, with Keith Allen, who just called him every day and just made him feel so important and so special. And they had the stretch limo to pick him up uh, when he went to Philly, you know, pre, pre agreeing to sign with Philly. And it's just, um, you know, he made a great career decision, you know, and, uh, you know, Ted Lindsay was offering a lot more money and, Jake Milford, if I remember correctly, in Vancouver, you know, they both offered more, but uh, he went to Philly because of how classy the organization was. You know? yeah. Well, did I read that you bought Dave Keon's car? <laughs> I did. Yeah, yeah. You d- you read absolutely correctly from uh, 45 Gray, Ab- Gray Abbey Trail in uh, Scarborough. You know, his first year in the NHL, he drove an eight-year-old Monarch, you know, pretty, pretty classy, great car, but um, he won the Rookie of the Year, and with his bonus, he bought himself a brand-new 61 Meteor, and his bonus was 1500 bucks, and uh, yeah, and he sold me it for 200 Was it a good car, Paul? It was a great car. Are you kidding me? <laughs> And I left his house, and the first thing I hear is Pat Boone on the radio singing Moody River, you know, yeah, after I picked it up. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I speaking of cars, there, and Chris and I talk about this all the time, because you log your share of miles during an OHL season, but Chris yeah. and I get to do it on the bus. Somebody else is doing the driving. Yeah. As yeah. a scout. And and especially when you're with the the national programs trying to find the players and meet the players, et cetera, uh, a car I'm thinking basically becomes a second home to you. Yeah, I live in my car, but I remember the year, the years that I worked for the national team, thrifty, <coughs> thrifty car rental, <coughs> thrifty car rental. Uh, got something in my throat here. Thrifty car rental. Um, gave me a new car every 28,000 kilometers. And to show you how much travel, I mean, I, I went through seven cars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, That's 200 K in a year. Well, whatever. I, I, I know that my, I, I buy from, um, Rob Stein in, in, uh, 
he has a battery of, of car dealerships and, and basically he's always telling me nobody puts on more mileage all the customers I have than you you know so COVID has slowed me down it's uh, you know I've got a, a Kia Sorento and it's, I think it had 135 miles 1000 miles in in two years and it's I, I think I've gone only 19,000 since you know um, and that's 13 months and a half since the COVID type of thing. COVID so, has obviously uh, slowed down this OHL season. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. To a halt. Yeah. halt. Uh, yeah. What, do you, what yeah. do you think the effects of not playing a full season are going to have, or what are the effects going to be for these players? Well, I think there'll be, you know, like I think that, where you get drafted, who you are, what you are is going to be out the window. You know, they're going to be going for whoever shows their hungriest, you know. Uh, and while I'm thinking of the Kitchener Rangers, I, I can't help but um, go to the great Andre Benoit, you know. Um, he he played junior C in our town um, the year he got drafted by Paul Pie, you know, Serge's dad by the Kitchener Rangers, and what a, a spectacular, wonderful kid that kid was for five years. And to see his banner up there uh, uh, every time I come into Kitchener is really, really, really special, you know, really special. I, I was at University of Guelph taking my MA when Larry Robinson played there, and I, you know, to be up there with those guys, you know, it's pretty, pretty big honor. and what a winner that kid was, you know, is, you know, like uh, that Memorial Cup team with Derek Roy and him second and scoring in that. So um, very, very, very special young man. Now married Rick Wamsley's daughter, you know, so as he, as he tells the story, he met her in the library. (laughs) (laughs) You mean by library, he means hockey rink, I think. No, no, library, <laughs> seriously, seriously. Okay, okay. You talk about what a special player he was. And I, when I think about Andre Benoit, I think about Survivor on, on many levels, yeah, just because yeah. he just kept popping back up in the game. He'd be in the NHL for a while, AHL, yeah, Europe, yeah, back to the yeah, NHL. Yeah, the guy just yeah, never quit. Yeah. yeah. Well, my memory, my, my, my first memory of him was, um, he got a, you know he he tried and wanted to be a member of the first ski one ski in the first day up in Korea was a member of it Rick Tabarachi um, you know uh, first time skiing and he uh, he couldn't get up on one um, and and dusk was falling and he was beating the water up because he couldn't get up on one. <laughs> and I should I I should point out that I mentioned not the library, but the hockey rink, not in any way disparaging to Kelly, but no, she no, used to no, work no. with us on, on broadcasts Kelly? for kitchen. Kelly, Kelly did for kitchen yeah, yeah, Rangers yeah, games. Yeah. yeah Kelly Wamsley. Yeah, so yeah, I, I great, thought that might've been a way that, uh, that Andre had a chance to at least get to know her better, but the library, no, no, he was, better. he was with her long before I think she was on TV. Okay. If I'm not, if my memory serves me correctly, you know, I had to give the, the approval to Rick before Rick was comfortable with Andre. <laughs> <laughs> Rick's favorite story was when he was playing for Brantford Alexander's 
you know, and they were Hamilton Steelhawks. They were, you know, and he always got a kick out of the, some leather lung. How are things Wamsley playing for the Ontario uh, Ontario Fin Cups or something? It was really funny, you know, like in other words, that they moved every year, you know. Um, but what a, what a career Rick had too, you know, third round pick of Montreal, you know. Yeah, special guy. When you're in those rinks, Paul, and obviously scouts, you guys see each other um, all the time. How much conversation yeah. is there about certain players between scouts on opposite teams? Yeah, I, I I think that you don't really talk about them because it's it, it's you know you don't want to show your hand you know like you you know like yeah I mean you're you're you know like I I I, I don't you know I I don't talk to other other scouts about players I mean that's you know. Um, I mean, you know, you, if you do, you're not doing yourself any favors because you know, all you're doing is giving them the information that your boss needs, you know, um, not that you have never done it or something, but no, I mean, no, it's, it's not, it's not common. It's common that a lot of scouts think alike, but that's a different issue, you know, how much has the way you evaluate a player changed over the years? Um, I think the, I don't think it, it has changed. Um, I think the fact is that players find you, not you finding players, you know? Um, yeah. Players find you. In other words, they, they, they jump out at you like a 3d type of thing, you know? So, um, and then you, you know, you, and, and every everybody has something special about them, you know. And uh, and lots of players have lots special about them. And and you know you need you need as forwards you need six offensive guys and you need six guys that know how to play both ends of the rink, you know. So um, I I think it's it's a real knack, you know, um, scouting, you know. And uh, not everybody can do it. And a lot of people don't want to pay the price, you know, because it's it's a tough life, you know, uh, being away from your family, you know, um, you know, there's, yeah, it's, it's an exciting and interesting, you know, life type of thing. But it's also, you know, there's lots of risks and lots of rewards. I mean, some of the nights you have to go out in, you know, um, but, you know, you you do it because of commitment and love and passion, you know, making teams better. Uh, as Korea used to tell me, players win, <laughs> you know. I want to go back to this COVID thing just for a second. With the yeah. lack of a season, how detrimental to the mental health of some of these players do you think this failed season would be? Well, that's something that, that, you can't pinpoint at this point in time because it's still, it's still crippling. You know, I mean, I think everybody thought that there would be a shortened season in the OHL and then all of a sudden there's nothing. So OHL kids haven't had a chance to play for a year, you know, unless they're the good ones who've had a chance to play at the national team level, you know, but no, I, I think it's been a horrible year in terms of, 
if if that's your career path and you've you've missed a whole year you know like you you know like yeah i mean i mean what about the european kids that you draft and they 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 wait and they wait and they wait and uh, they can't play you know um you know like i'm thinking of the sioux uh you know with Yaramir Pitlick, you know, and, and Mary, uh, not Merrick, but Merrick's son, Nick Malik, you know, like, I mean, um, in Pitlick's case and Nick's case, they played in the World Junior um, and have hardly played anything but that, you know. Some players haven't had anything, you know. Yeah. You mentioned when talking about Andre Benoit a moment ago about his, his banner being up there in the rafters at the odd, right alongside a Larry Robinson, another player and one of the most prolific scoring players that the Ontario hockey league has ever seen is a fellow by the name of Peter Lee. His banner has been raised in Ottawa and you had a chance yeah. to, to work with him in Berlin. What can you tell I us did. about Peter, a guy that I know a lot of OHL fans would at least know the name. Well, he's one of the smartest hockey men in Europe. I mean, he actually was Ralph Kruger's right-hand man with Team Switzerland all those years that Ralph was coaching um, Buffalo. Um, but he he he's just made an unbelievable career um, winning in Berlin, you know, um, in, in Germany, in the DEL. You know, very, very special, special, really, really great person, you know, um, who now I think oversees all of uh, Berlin's programs, you know. Um, but he's had a really, really, really great career in, in, in Europe and just a sniper, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Good, good person. You mentioned earlier about scouts, they see the same thing. And you said, that's another story. Why do you think so many scouts see the same thing? Well, no, I think that they talk too much, you know, <laughs> rather than, you know, not talk, you know, and they, and one guy thinks one thing and, you know, then everybody thinks it. And I think it's really detrimental to the player that you're watching because it's almost that they get fixed with that mentality. I mean, I, I remember Central Scouting sent us to see Mark Giordano. Um, no, they sent us to see a guy named John Gleed, and all I could see was Mark Giordano. John Gleed subsequently got drafted in the eighth round, I think, by uh, Montreal Canadiens at that time, and he went to Cornell. Um, but the best player by 400 country miles was Giordano. And I, I actually remember seeing Ricky Nash and, and uh, Stajan at that game. It was uh, playoffs. And uh, it was fascinating to see how good he was. And I remember Mike Fuda calling me early July. Do you think Mark Giordano can play for us? Like he, he was a late birthday, so he wasn't eligible for the draft. Um, and he was going to Ferris State on a hockey scholarship. And I said, Mike, snap him up. And Mike did. And and uh, he played there, you know, for two or three years. He played his overage year there. Um, Dave Draper really, really liked him as well. We were working for Phoenix together, um, but we couldn't get him drafted. And then 
and then he he didn't get drafted and Tommy Webster who was our minor league coach when I worked for the Rangers called me and asked me what I thought and I said sign him you know and I mean he he signed Tommy Webster signed him and and basically he played in Lowell in the American League and look look I mean I'll never forget the night I was in Toronto watching Calgary play Toronto and there's Giordano outplaying Bomeister who everybody in the world was rushing to see play in Medicine Hat you know who you know got picked in the top three type of thing and I mean he was and here, here's Giordano surpassing Bomeister at that point in time you know like I mean it was you know I mean so you can never ever count anybody or diss them or, you know, like everybody, it's, uh, there's, you know, that's measuring heart, you know, and I, hey, Bowmeister, I remember seeing him play, you know, in the under 17 as an underage in, in um, uh, Newfoundland. And I mean, it was ridiculous. I couldn't believe how beautiful a skater he was and how good a player he was. So, but, you know, he didn't, you know, he, he, I mean, he won the Stanley Cup there with St. Louis, but, you know, again, he was just so, so smooth, so good. But he, it's the same as the year 2013. Here you got Seth Jones rated one and you got McKinnon two. And McKinnon was a man on a mission. I've never seen anybody dominate the Memorial Cup the way he did that year in Saskatoon, you know. Um, I mean, he, he, he was a man possessed to show Seth Jones who was better. You know, um, so that's why they play the games. You mentioned that U seventeen in Newfoundland, where you saw Bo Meester as an underager. Yeah. Is that the yeah. same one, Paul? Joe Thornton? No, the, no, Joe. That, there was ninety five with Joe. Yeah, Joe, and that's very, very interesting what you're saying because ninety five is the only time there's ever been two under seventeens in the same year, and that's the one that um, one of the major upsets of all time was a 3-1 win by Saskatchewan over Alberta, who featured, you know, um, Chris Phillips, Jonathan Aiken, um, Josh Holden, Derek Morris, Darren Van Oen. Um, all those guys um, were on that, that team. And there was a guy named Jarrett Smith, who went first overall in the WHL. He was a 79 birthday. And he was, you know, I remember a full page in the Edmonton Sun, you know, the can't miss kid. Um, well, he was on the team and I thought I thought he, he looked like Frank Mahovlich in that tournament, you know. Um, to me, or Frank Mahovlich in, in, in waiting. Anyway, that, that Tiny Saskatchewan, coached by Ross Mahoney, went on to win the Stanley Cup with Washington as the assistant general manager a couple of years ago. He was the coach of the team, and uh, they had Patrick Marlowe, who got two goals in the 3-1 win, and he was a 79, so he was an underager, you know. And that was that, was that candle winter games in Grand Prairie in February um, of 95. And the same year in Moncton, um, at the end of the summer, just before school started, it was the under-17 that year in Moncton. And um, 
Canada, or no, not Canada, but Ontario won 2-1 um, over Finland, and Joe Thornton scored the game-winning goal, you know. Um, so um, here, here's the one and two picks scoring, you know, a game-winning goal in two different and separate under-17s. And I was just saying to somebody, I've been watching Joe Thornton for 27 years. I saw him in Leamington at a Junior B All-Star game at 14. You know, and, and so, Patrick, I, I've been watching him play for 26 years. Anyway, pretty interesting. Did you ever think watching those under-17s that Patrick would play the most games ever in the NHL? No, no, not a chance. <laughs> Are you kidding? You know, yes. no, no, no. You know, you just saw how ridiculously special he was. And they, they had a good team besides Patrick. But, you know, they had they had Corey Sarich, who became an NHL defenseman for many years. Um, they had a couple of really, really small standout players. Uh, Marty Standish, who went to play for Portland Winterhawks, and, and um, Jeff Omer or Jason Omer, one of the two, there was two brothers, one was a 77, the other was 78, they were from Wilcox, you know, um, they had a guy named Trevor Wasseluck, who was a second round pick of Carolina, you know, they, they, they had, but they were so well prepared and so well coached and, uh, and, uh, you know, but, but Patrick was a superstar and waiting, you know. What is it that, yeah keeps the fire in your belly for this game all these years later, Paul? I have no idea. All <laughs> I know is well, my first childhood memory was kicking and screaming when my dad picked me up at six years old at St. Clair's rink, you know, the school I went to, grade school at Dufferin and St. Clair in Toronto. You know, and, you know, my my dad came to pick me up on his way home from work to go for dinner and I didn't want to go and I'm kicking and you know, like that's that's my first childhood memory and I still have the same passion today. I don't know why, you know. I have no clue. You've obviously seen thousands and thousands of hockey games throughout your career. Is there one game or a specific moment that stands out to you? Um, I I really there's so many it's ridiculous you know um but the the one in 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 uh, i talked about was Tavares played the best junior game i've ever seen a player play and it was uh, i think it was 6-5 and he got a power play goal a shorthanded goal and a regular you know strength goal and he got an assist on another goal and he had scored one in the first period, and then he got the—he was the last shooter, and he got the—he uh, got the shootout game winner. That—that—that that, that was that really defined what he is, who he is, you know. Like um, that was that was special. And then I—I I tell the story of the second best was Nikolai Ehlers, who they were they were losing six to two Halifax in Rouen, Naranda, and uh, <laughs> he went to work, and I, I said that he got three and three, but he corrected me last year and said he got four and two, you know, um, but, you know, those are those are two special games, but the one game by far was the gold medal game in, in uh, Lilyhammer, 
you know, by far, you know, never been involved there or seen a game like that in my life, you know. From yeah. from those moments to one that you weren't as involved in personally, but I think makes for a really unique story, Paul, and that is one that many Canadians have etched in their memories. Oh, yeah, I was blank, insert place here when Paul Henderson scored for Team oh, Canada in the 72 Summit yeah. Series. Where were you? I was in Millhaven Penitentiary in the common room watching with 14 guys who were charged with two counts of murder from the Kingston Penitentiary riot of April 14th, 1871. And uh, that's that's where I was when that occurred, you know. And Pat Stapleton always told me that that was by far the best story he ever... People always told him where they were and, and Pat, who, you know, died earlier in the year. What a, what a sad loss. And it, it happened on a on the day that his grandson signed his first NHL contract, his grandson is Mark Kaskaluk, who's in the Ottawa American League team, and uh, the son of Ed Kaskaluk, who played for London Knights, you know. Yeah, but that's where I was. What was the mood like in that room? Oh, electrifying. I mean, those are, you know, they're real people. Uh, you know, they were, they were, totally involved and every everybody in the country was glued to the tv that day you know mm-hmm. and if you weren't you didn't have a tv <laughs> and you, you had one the in the com- yeah and you had one in the common room at millhaven pen yeah 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 <laughs> yeah oh that was a wing though you know oh of course um, yeah but those guys were they were very interesting you know, it, it's obvious just by listening to you, Paul, that the the connections that you've made, the relationships that you've built, uh, the players and the other people in the game that you've come to know, uh, there's there's still contact with them all these years later. You might you, you mentioned Forsberg just a couple of years ago, Ehlers, you know, correcting you on the three and three. It was a four and two. These yeah, relationships yeah. don't go away quietly at all, do they? But you see, I've been doing the CHL import draft for a number of teams, and he's a guy that, you know, I recommended to Halifax to pick, you know. Um, he and Timo Meyer, actually, and Timo was a late birthday, so they both got picked ninth overall, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they've there's been lifelong friendships. I've been very fortunate and blessed to have great friends. I mean, you know starting, you know, back with the Drapers. I mean, they taught me everything I know, so I always tell everybody if I know nothing, it's their fault, not mine. You know? <laughs> uh, but Chris Draper, there's, there's, they asked me to do a favor for him, you know, at, at 17 after he played Don Mills Midgets, you know, give him a trial with the Olympic team, just give him a taste. And the guy goes out there, uh, out of Midget and makes the national team, you know, like, and then wins four Stanley Cups, you know. So, I mean, hey, if their dad didn't push me to give him that tryout, then uh, who knows, you know. It's it's life. It's mysterious. As a big Red Wings fan, I went to a game once and I got to go meet the players after anyway. I was in the stands and Chris, uh, Chris came walking towards me, or at least what I thought yeah. was Chris. It was his father wearing one of his Stanley Cup rings, but holy Mike, goodness, did Mike, he look alike. Mike, Mike, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the twin brothers, they were, 
inseparable, you know, and what a sad loss losing Bruce at 28, you know, uh, with a three and a one and a half year old daughter. I, I remember being like, they grew up, you know, right two blocks from me and uh, we went to the same grade school and they were four or five years older than me, but they were, they were my big brothers, you know, and uh, I remember being on the street corner, 64 Primrose in Ottawa, which was where they, they moved to, you know, um, at 16, they moved to, to Ottawa at 16. And I used to go and spend a couple of weeks with them every summer. And I remember being on the street corner and Bruce was crying his eyes out you know, because Murray Balfour had passed away, and Murray was on the million-dollar line with uh, Bobby Hullen and uh, Red Hay, uh, Billy Hay, and uh, he was the right winger, and he ended up in Hershey with his cancer, and you know, not anywhere near the player he was. And Bruce said that he, the last thing he said to him, "I'll see in training camp." Well, here it is, middle of August, and uh, Bruce is crying his eyes out because he passed. You know, and the same day, Bruce had gone to a doctor with a cyst on his testicle. The doctor said, don't worry about it, go away. Well, he was rife with cancer himself and, uh, you know, passed away, uh, you know, probably not very long after, like, no, not more than a year uh, after, you know. So life's nuts, you know, like, and what a player he was. If you look at the records with St. Mike's, he outpointed Keon in in uh, Keon's first year in Toronto, you know. So the next year, Keon took off seventy points, type of thing. And but Bruce was the reason, you know, with Father Bauer beating Rattel and Gilbert uh, out of Guelph. I mean, that was nobody expected that. Nobody, you know. We uh, we kind of started sixty sixty one. We started this conversation around St. Mike's and that 60-61 Memorial Cup team. And, you know, I know how many big games and events you've attended in the arenas you've been in. So rather than ask the best, be honest with me, Paul. That's St. Mike's yeah. arena. Come on. It, like, it's, it's really not a great arena. We know this, right? No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. But my favorite story about the St. Mike's arena is uh, um, – it, 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 when I went to St. Mike's as a grade nine student and played for St. Mike's, it was an outdoor rink. Like, and it just got covered over, you know, is is how it became what it is today. And in 60, 61, um, the rink, I think that was the first year of the rink, and Red Kelly dropped the puck between the two captains. And one of the captains was was Terry O'Malley. Well, he was the captain of, you know, I don't, I can't remember who they were playing. And 50 years later, they had the anniversary um, and they had Notre Dame and Wilcox were playing St. Mike's tier two team. And it was the first time they'd ever met. And um, who, who drops the puck? But Terry O'Malley and Red Kelly. <laughs> that's Come fantastic. On. Yeah, that's gospel, gospel, you know. And I don't know, that's that's the first place I saw Wendell Clark play. Um, and then I saw him play at the Kentucky Fried Chicken Cup in uh, Ottawa, <laughs> Nepean, which is now the Steve Eisenman rink. So, yeah. The KFC yeah. Cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wilcox, 
Saskatchewan, Notre Dame, you know. Paul Gerard was on that team. Drafted him for the Rangers, you know, like yep. Paul, did you have a favorite player? Favorite Maybe not player, the best got, player, but just a favorite I got, player. I got so many favorite players, yeah. I, I could never mention one in particular. You know. That's and, fair. And we should be we should be pointing out that every time that Paul mentions drafting players for the Rangers. He means the New York Rangers. Yeah. Ah, forgot. <laughs> forgot. Yeah. That's right. Paul. But we used to own Kitchener Rangers. We sold them for a buck. That's right. <laughs> also true. Eugene yeah. George got himself a steal with that one, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, Paul, this has been a lot of fun. We really appreciate yeah. you making the time yeah, for us. Yeah, no, no. I've enjoyed it immensely, and uh, I hope to meet you guys someday. Yeah, let's have a coffee in the media room, okay? Yeah, absolutely. All right. I look forward to it. Next time you're in there, you make sure you slap our heads as you walk by. All right. (laughs) Mike Farwell, Chris Pope. (laughs) Thanks, Paul. Much appreciated. All right. Talk to you. Take care. Call Shannon to get on this podcast. Yeah, I will. Don't worry. Yeah, I'll give it to him. (laughs) And tell you the Gretzky story. I I can't tell you it. He's going to tell you it. Okay. This is going to happen. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I worked with for Gretzky for three years with Phoenix and it was fun you know I think the best the best one about that was uh, if you're running out of time just let me know but Wayne flexed his muscles with Martin Crowley in the 93 playoffs in Montreal and uh, you know Marty wasn't doing what Wayne wanted him to do so Wayne said but I do have <laughs> 2,000 points in this league you know he was pissed at Marty and Marty uh Marty made the comment, but how many have you had from the D? (laughs) (laughs) Like, in other words, you don't know what you're talking about, buddy. Never forget that one. eh? But how many have you got from D? You know, that's the competitive spirit in guys like that at that level, for sure. That's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Paul, thank you again for this. All right. Good to talk to both of you. Bye now. Bye bye. Bye now. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.